Welcome to Liberated, a Liberal Democrat podcast. I'm Laura Sheeter. This episode, we're talking about health and social care. The NHS is one of our most cherished institutions, the focus of huge popular support and also worries about how it's faring, how we can sustain a service that's free at the point of delivery and how we can keep pace with society's changing and increasing healthcare needs. Our expert this episode is Alistair McClellan. He's been the editor of the Health Service Journal for 15 years, so he's perfectly placed to give us a bit of perspective on the challenges facing the NHS and social care, especially as we recorded our conversation on a day of headlines about worsening patient waiting times. Given that context, I started by asking Vince Cable for his assessment of the state of the NHS today. Well, it's under a lot of stress for a mixture of reasons. I mean, partly demographic. We've got an ageing population. Older people need more health care. Finances have been tight for some years. I mean, the levels of spending that were maintained in the run-up to the financial crisis were not sustainable, and we've since had a serious cutback. The NHS has adapted. I go into my local hospitals quite frequently. I talk to the local doctors. I don't want to go along with extreme rhetoric that the whole system is collapsing, because it isn't. But it is under a lot of stress, and... The policy that we had at last general election of having a penny pound on income tax to provide an injection of cash to meet the immediate problems, and it doesn't solve the long-term sustainability issue, seems to me absolutely the right one, and people are feeding this back to me as an idea, even if they didn't know it came from the Lib Dems. But I think it's an important interim solution to the stress within the system. I think that's what we should be doing and the chances should be doing in the budget. Alistair, I'll ask you the same question, really. As someone who's been a long-time editor of the Health Service Journal, what are you hearing from people about the situation at the moment? The NHS is, as Vince has said, clearly under an enormous amount of strain. The period since 2010, the funding it has received then, that's a period which is a historic low for for, for the NHS, although it has received just above inflation uh, rises to funding. The NHS is historically run on about 4% above inflation. And after seven years, that's going to begin to have an impact. And as we've seen today, the waiting times for patients are all going backwards, whether it be elective cares, A&E and um, uh, cancer. At the moment, I would say quality is holding up more or less, but access is really beginning to suffer now. What kind of solutions do you think people are calling for? Money and more money. Um, uh, After seven years of um, austerity, although the NHS has received more money than other areas of the public service, for the NHS, used to living on 4% above inflation for its entire average over its history, it's a period of real constraint. And I think there's no doubt in everybody's mind that more money is needed. And of course, the longer the period of austerity goes on, the greater the capital and revenue investment that is required when that point actually comes. And so you mentioned the 1P, but is it just money or do other things need to change? Yes, I think money is necessary, but not sufficient. I mean, you, I think it's long, long accepted. We, we need to 
change the basic model within which the health service functions so there's more emphasis on primary rather than secondary care that there's more emphasis on prevention rather than dealing with people when they get to hospital yesterday i was involved in a local campaign in my constituency to promote community pharmacists who if encouraged with the right kind of incentives can do all kind of things like you know promoting flu jabs so people don't need to go to the gp surgery uh, can do health checks you know simple things but at the moment they're being you know driven to the wall by perverse incentives and cuts just to take another example a rather trivial example I'm, I'm involved in a big battle with my local council which is trying to stop local residents exercising on a public green uh, on the grounds that this is bad for the grass and uh, all kind of absolutely ludicrous jobsworth type objections but because the principle of people looking after their health through you know sensible exercise and cycling and all the rest of it is absolutely sensible you've got to have a joined up approach and if we do have a joined up approach then at least this takes some of the pressure off the system i know the manifesto talked about in the long term joining health and social care together i mean that sounds like a huge reform Yes, I mean, the soundbite is easy to give, but it's more complicated in practice. I I think there are one or two parts of the country, Dudley in the West Midlands, Manchester, which are experimenting with this, but integrating decision-making isn't totally straightforward. But the principle is right. I mean, what's happening at the moment in some ways is absurd. I mean, and certainly in my local hospitals, very large number of frail elderly people who shouldn't be in hospital. I mean, this is old, long-standing problem of backing up, of bed blocking, a slightly pejorative phrase, but captures it. Whereas these, a lot of these elderly people just need support at home or daycare centres and things of this kind. But those services have been shredded as a result of cuts in local government. So the balance is wrong. And one of the things we are eager to ensure through our penny in the pound on income tax is that of the six billion or so that you generate, a substantial amount of that, two billion maybe, needs to be in local social care to ensure that you do get a proper integration of the service. There's no doubt that social care is in crisis. The NHS is often described as in crisis. I don't think it is in that situation now, but there's no doubt that the social care system is broken and it has, as Vince has explained, very significant impacts on on the NHS. I think it's a relatively uncontroversial position to take now that health and social care needs to have a great amount of integration. I think there's reasonable agreement across the political spectrums of politicians I talk to all agree that it needs to be done. Of course, as Vincent said again, it's about how you do it. The fundamental challenge in the middle of this is that you have healthcare which is free at the point of delivery and social care which is means tested. Now if you're going to integrate that service that gives you a really significant policy challenge which I've not really seen any party come up with a, an easy answer to. No, I, I, you know, we do have to think about whether you have some kind of ring fence budget in the long term, and I, I agree. I, I don't think there are any simple answers. I think there is an overlapping problem because many of the elderly people who need social care have dementia, and that poses great challenges to hospitals because you know the care they require often isn't nursing it's just helping people feed and go to the loo and so you you do need a different model for dealing with it and but it opens up the bigger question 
which the Lib Dems have been very forceful in advocating, that we've long neglected mental health as an issue, whether it's for young people, where incidence is rising at an alarming speed for complicated social reasons, and amongst the elderly, where the incidence of dementia again is increasing uh, very, very rapidly indeed. So, you know, we do need to shift the focus within the health budget away from the traditional Cinderella service towards mental health. One question I got repeatedly from several different people on our Facebook and Twitter feeds was just a fear of reform, a lack of trust, a sense that any reform is privatisation and that this was seen as something that people were fearful of. I don't know if that's something you get a sense of at the Health Service Journal. So I've been editor of HSJ since 2002 and the NHS privatisation concern has been rolling ever since then. There is no doubt that there is a greater involvement in the private sector in supplying NHS care than there was 15 years ago. It's still relatively marginal and private companies lose contracts as well as they lose them to the NHS as well as gain them. I think there is a very big issue around reform, how you involve local populations, patients and carers in the reform. And I think the current sustainability and transformation partnership reforms have fallen foul of that involvement. But the question around NHS uh, NHS reform is so much bigger than issues of privatisation. Privatisation, in my view, is pretty much a red herring. There are much more significant issues where you cite A&Es, um, how you treat care for people with dementia, health and social care integration, and a whole list of others. And so do you say it's, it's an issue of trust more than the reforms themselves? No, I, I, I agree that this, I think it's a very good comment. I think the, the privatisation issue is a massive red herring. And I think people raise it for two reasons. One a good reason, one a bad reason. I think the good reason is that, you know, the health service has a really strong public service ethos. And I think people are worried that this will in some sense get contaminated as a result of bringing people in who are profit-seeking. And that's a genuine concern. But I think on the other side, there is a very strong resistance to any form of change. And often that is covered by trying to drag out this kind of ideological arguments, which are not relevant. As, As I remember the figures the amount of services procured by the NHS from purely from the private sector, I think, have gone up in the last five years or so from six to nine percent. I mean, it's you know, it's growing, but it's not it's not big. And and of course, there've always been a, a very strong private element in the NHS. I mean, following the battle which um, Anorin Bevan lost with the GPs, I mean, doctors are private individuals; they're not NHS employees. And there are many other services which have traditionally been provided by private business people, big and small. So I totally agree it's a red herring. You know, one needs to be careful that people don't allow private companies to just come in and cherry pick profitable services at other people's expense. But I, I think that is a lesser concern than many of the others we have about the NHS. I had one question that came in from an NHS manager asking about the clear success of specialist units for trauma for things like stroke, but how you can ensure that people have access to those. Because at this stage, the person who sent in the question said, you know, there isn't necessarily that protection that ensures people get referred to the specialist centres from their primary care. So ensuring, I guess, that across the board, people have ready access to good primary and and first line local hospitals, but also that they get referred on to those specialist centres 
you know, a lot of people fear when they're when the centres move geographically further away. Yes, I, 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 there's enormous pressure from clinicians and particularly from the people at the top end of the profession to have world-class services, which they tend to see as being in specialist units. And that's very understandable and commendable. My late wife was treated for cancer for a long period of time at the Royal Marsden, and it was a great relief to know that you were dealing with a world-class research and uh, treatment centre. But the other side of all this is that if, if you live in big cities where transport communication is poor, or if you're living in rural areas, access is arguably more important than getting that extra bit of equality. And I worry sometimes that the people who are pushing for reorganisation of health facilities don't get the extent to which access is a real problem for people, particularly poor people who just rely on buses, and there's relative in hospital, you know, enormous journey problems. I mean, access and short distances really do matter, and that's got to be given proper weight. There's always a tension in health service reform from clinicians who will focus on the outcomes and populations and individuals in there who will, as Vince has said, express the anxiety about being able to access services. It's a tension I just think that is inherent in NHS reforms. The way, the best way, and it's not a a perfect answer that you resolve that, is giving people the information so that they are able to make a proper judgment when the when decisions have come up you know everybody would want an a and e at the end of their street is it is is often said because just for the sheer reassurance factor but within a state funded system the budget is finite and judgments have got to be made but in this day and age with there's uh, rightly so so much transparency you can't avoid those kind of conversations now so you have to make sure that the public know why you're making the decisions I know you're heading off for PMQs imminently, so I want to get in the biggest question that we had posts about, uh, which we've talked about before on this series, which is about the impact of Brexit, EU nationals working in the NHS. What has happened already in terms of impact? Um, And I might come to you first on this, Alistair. And then, you know, what can we do to protect those staff who are so vital to the NHS? There's no doubt that the vote to leave the European Union has already had an effect on the NHS. The NHS uh, relies a lot on staff from the European Union and we are seeing trust after trust uh, report EU staff leaving and the difficulty of recruiting staff from the European Union. The government made a commitment to recruit 5,000 more doctors. NHS England have recognised that a lot of those doctors, 2,000 of them, are going to have to come from overseas and they're going to the European try and get them. Despite the assurances from the government, from the Prime Minister and the Secretary of State, I think there's a real doubt in, plainly there's a doubt in staff from the EU who might come and work in the NHS about whether they're welcome here. The NHS needed that like it needed a hole in the head. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I went recently to Kingston Hospital, which is one of my neighbouring district hospitals, scores pretty well on all the key indicators, is popular, well-respected. And the chief executive said that her biggest single risk factor was the loss of EU nurses. And basically what's happened is a lot of them felt insecure in the wake of the vote. 
They then applied or made inquiries about British nationality to secure their position here. They were then faced with these 83-page questionnaires, a helpline that wasn't helpful, and some of them have just felt, well, okay, if the country doesn't want me, I'll go back to Poland or Romania or France or wherever it happens to be. And this is happening on a big scale. It's a big scale. It's not just trivial. And it's nurses, I think, more than doctors, but the effect is going to spread. And the question is, what do we do about it? I mean, apart from stopping Brexit, which of course we'd like to do, the most important single thing the government could do is to completely isolate this issue about the security of European Union nationals in the current negotiations, just make it absolutely clear that those who are here now are secure, are protected, their rights are not going to be lost. Uh, uh, and that's something we can do unilaterally. It can be done tomorrow. How optimistic are you that it will be done? No, I mean, the, the government's insisting on using these people as a bargaining tool, which is, you know, not just inhumane, but just counterproductive, because it's just robbing us of a very good human resource. Very lastly, then, we both said that we don't want to say this is an NHS in crisis, but there are lots of warnings coming out now looking ahead to the flu season. How bad are things? Yes, NHS England um, have warned that the flu season this year might be particularly bad. It might be, it might not be. I mean, to a certain extent, how well the NHS fares over the winter is down to luck. Where you know, There are issues like um, the weather and things like that. You hear a lot of scare stories in my job about the services falling over. I don't think we're in that kind of situation. But there is no doubt that people are going to be waiting a long, a significantly longer time to access services, whether it's in A&E or in elective care. And that could be made particularly worse if we have a, a tough winter. And perhaps most of all, the strain on the staff could increase very significantly. And as we've just discussed, not all of them have to stay in this country. They've got other options. And if we get staff leaving the country, workforce, as Vince said, workforce is the issue that keeps chief executives up at night. And as they go under strain, then they may consider other options, especially if those have pay rises associated with them, where, of course, the NHS has had significant pay restraint for a, a number of years. No, I agree, agree with all of that. The NHS is currently coping, but under stress, but it doesn't have spare capacity. And a major emergency, whether from that or from some other source, is going to be cripplingly difficult to deal with. And I would agree with the final comment that the key resource is staff. I mean, if you don't have the nursing staff, I mean, you can install a bed in a in a ward that's been mothballed, but you can't just conjure up staff from nowhere. Uh, and that is partly around the immigration issue in Europe, but it's also around pay and lifting the cap on nurses and other NHS employees' pay does seem to me a crucial step, something I and my colleagues have argued for. And doing it in a way that, of course, doesn't just take, isn't paid for by the NHS budgets, because that would be completely counterproductive. So as far as you're concerned, the NHS, or the impact on the NHS is a major driver behind exit from Brexit? Yes, I, it's one of many, and I don't want to exaggerate its importance, but you know, the NHS is a massively important institution. All these surveys show that politically it is the one issue that they want political parties to get right. And if the effect of Brexit is to cause serious damage to the NHS, then I think the government will not be forgiven for it. And it is a powerful driver behind our call to have a popular vote on whether to press ahead with Brexit once we know the results or to exit from Brexit. 
Thanks for listening to Liberated. If you enjoyed the conversation, please do rate, review and share it wherever you listen to podcasts. It'll help other people find the show. As you heard, we're also putting your questions to Vince, so please do check our Facebook page and look for posts on other Liberal Democrat sites, where we'll be letting you know what topic we want questions on next. We're at Liberated Pod on Twitter and Liberated Podcast on Facebook. Thanks to Alistair McClellan for joining the conversation and to Mark Pack and Benjamin Leal for their invaluable support making this series.